Well, good morning. Welcome to Eastlake. We're so glad that you're here. Part three of a series called Flipping Tables. If by chance you missed the first two parts, uh, you can go on to eastlaketricities.com slash talks and catch up. Uh, this one will be posted there uh, by Tuesday or so. And uh, quick hello, because we do have people who uh, watch that, if you're watching online, or the team of people watching it in Walla Walla. Hey, guys. And uh, anyways, it's all awesome. It's been a series on social justice. Uh, it's been a series that uh, comes to us, or we, we, we thought of it, the name comes from this story where Jesus, uh, this like, episode in his like, life and teachings uh, that are recorded for us in the Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where he goes into the temple and uh, he gets like really angry and he does the thing that you've always wanted to do at, at like your office place at one point where you're just going to get up and just throw the table. Um, and you, you don't do it because you, know, you, you want to keep a job or whatever, don't want to be that guy. Uh, but Jesus goes into this, this temple system, this religious system, and sees what's taking place. Basically what has happened is uh, that there are some people who are in power who figured out how to make a buck on some things. And, uh, and by, but in doing so, are taking uh, advantage of people who don't have the power and are the ones who can least afford to, to you know, pay that money. Um, and what happened is what they said was, basically, um, animals need to be sacrificed at this temple system. That's what they did back then. Uh, and the animal that you bring from home isn't good enough. But great news, we brought one from our home that is good enough. These are qualified, right? And they're trying, there's like a, they gave all kinds of reasons as to why you can only buy temple animals um, because they're, you know, free from disease and all that kind of stuff. They came up with plausible explanations for why they stand to kind of make money in this way, uh, but they weren't genuinely authentic reasons. There's other motivations. And, so that, and that's true for like any any sort of injustice system, typically the people who are in power have got plausible reasons, but they aren't the true actual reasons. They notice, and Jesus noticed, you're in this thing just to make a buck and you're doing it on the backs of people who can't afford it at all. Now, so then he goes through the thing of, of flipping the tables and, and says basically uh, in acting this thing out in like this guerrilla theater type of scenario. Shame on you for looking at something like temple worship and thinking, well, how can I make a buck on this, right? Now, I do want to clarify because I don't know if I was clear last week. Uh, I, I read a quote at the very end of the, of the service from a guy named Nicholas Walterstorff, a book that I'd kind of been working through. Um, and in it, he said that God is not even-handed when it comes to the areas of economic uh, stuff. Oof. Um, he, uh, he basically said God is on, you know, on both sides in terms of your favorite football team, right? He's not like for the Seahawks, but against the Dallas Cowboys, although I'd like to think that he is. Uh, that's, that's not true. But when it comes to economics, um, his statement in this book was God is on the side of the poor. Um, and so I was, I, I, last week I left it with, how does this kind of resonate with you? And, uh, and, and I got rightfully challenged, which is a good thing. Like this is, this is uh, he's not, anti-rich in this way. Here's what he's trying, here's what's going on with this. He's like, I want you to think about, because um, uh, he's not anti-entrepreneurial, or um, I came up with a word because I can't say entrepreneurial that well. This isn't a jab at income ingenuity. Entrepreneurial, a little, even when I, I stumbled through it all week long, and I was like, screw it, I'm gonna say income ingenuity. Hopefully that's all right with you. He's not anti this. In fact, there's this scenario, there's this instance where Jesus tells uh, a parable and it's called the parable of the shrewd manager. And it's in Luke chapter 17. And it's one of the most interesting parables ever. I have this book on parables. And in this one, there's like a lot, not a lot of information on it because it doesn't, it doesn't resonate. It's not very clear. It doesn't make a lot of sense. In fact, the moral of the story or the way that the story transpires is not typical good guy wins, bad guy loses, therefore be a good guy. 
in this scenario, if you don't remember this, you can look this up for yourself in Luke chapter 17. There's a man who works for an owner, like this money lender type thing. And uh, he's not doing this, the guy who's working for him is not doing a very good job. And finally, he, it's announced or it's told to him, like, you're going to be fired. I'm firing you this week. By the end of the week, I want your boxes packed. You're out of here, right? So he's got a few days left. And it's, he, uh, Jesus says, once upon a time, this guy got fired. And then he thought through the scenario. And he looked at himself in the mirror and he goes, I'm not built for hard labor. I cannot dig holes, literally, is what he says. I can't dig. What am I going to do? And he came up with this really smart idea. How can I make a buck out of this? He said, he went to anybody that owed his master money and said, how much is it that you owe me? And they would say like a thousand barrels of oil, which I don't know why you'd ever own a thousand barrels of oil or why you'd buy that or trade that or whatever. But anyway, it doesn't matter. He basically looks at this, each of them individually and says, all right, if you have it today, we'll cut it in half. Take, your, take what you owe and cut it in half. And he does this multiple times. And the story gets around to the master eventually. Hey, did you know that this guy that you're firing is going off and, and, and releasing the debt of all of these people who owe you money? And then the next verse, this is so, this is, I mean, this is like something shady is happening here. And in verse chapter eight, here's what it says. When the master found out, he was pissed. Just kidding. It's not just no pissed in the Bible. You should you'd be like, wow, the Bible's so cool, man. No, uh, that's me making up a verse and, uh, and, and just making it so I can say piss in church. The actual verse is this. The master commended, right? Here's how we expect this story to end. The master finds out that this guy's going behind his back, releasing all of this debt, trying to probably pocket some for himself, and he brings him in and he goes, what's wrong with you? Like, I was going to give you until Friday. Now you have until two and you need to get out. That's, that's what we kind of expect from this story. But instead, Jesus tells the story in this way, which confounds people from for centuries. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Oh, good for you. You acted shrewdly in this way. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of light. Dude, I don't even know what that verse means. That, that requires like a whole other series on its own. But verse nine, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed in to eternal dwellings. So here, here's basically what the, the point of the story, the parable of the story, and anytime it comes to uh, the, the point of it, uh, of a parable, like that becomes the ultimate thing. Like you can't, the, 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 the parables and the way that they work, what's the main point? That's what you should take away from minus all the other things. Because you'd be like, but he got that, he did it unethically. He, that was not his money to forgive. And, and Jesus doesn't, seems to bypass that and not care about that. Oh, I don't care. Here's what he figured out. Stuff is just stuff. You should use worldly wealth to increase all the stuff that, is intangible, that you can't purchase or whatever. This is, this is what he's going on. Uh, kudos to that guy for figuring it out, that stuff is just stuff. But he got there unethically. Jesus says, you know what? I, I'm, gonna, I, I'm not even going to address that. I'm not even going like, to justify it and say that's okay. He just moves on to something else. Why? Because the point that he's trying to make with the overall parable is that wealth has an oftentimes a way of becoming something more, something so much more. Not that it has to, it just can. It just has an avenue to. What, are, what is that something more? We'll get to it in a, a few minutes, but I just wanted to put that out there to kind of uh, help us set the stage for what we're going to read about. Because we're going to read about um, Amos chapter 3 today, 
I mentioned that this series is going to be a look, an, uh, an exegetical take, which basically means a way, a style of preaching that goes kind of verse by verse or chapter by chapter through a book, which may be something that you're used to if you went to a different church. Um, if you like that type of style and you're here today, you're in luck. You have one more week of that style. Like, I'm going to do this again next week, uh, but I don't usually do that. So if you, um, if you don't like it, then great, I never do this. If you do like it, then great. There are a lot of pastors who do. You should download their podcasts and listen to them and still come here, okay? So I'm not like kicking you out. I'm just saying, come here. You have a lot of time on your drive and go to the gym, figure it out on the other way. So anyways, all right. Um, Amos is uh, a prophet who was, uh, uh, spoke to the northern kingdom of Israel uh, prior to like 750 BC, so prior to their destruction. Eventually, they would be uh, invaded by the Assyrians in about 722, and they would become no longer a nation. These are the warnings leading up to that invasion. Um, some warnings specifically against economic injustice. Amos comes to us, and his background is like a, a shepherd overseer. So he didn't actually watch the sheep. He watched the guys who watched the sheep. So he has some sort of a business background that he apparently leaves behind, walks away from the business, and begins to address economic concerns uh, 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 involving Israel, which is a a big deal uh, for them because they are growing as a nation. They're in this, in this, you know, in the history of the uh, Old Testament, they're kind of expanding their boundaries and expanding their territories. And as they do, um, all of these people begin to pay tribute and taxes to Israel. So they're growing economically. And he's like, you guys aren't handling it very well. This is a problem. If you don't get this right, destruction is imminent and it's going to come. That's the overall tenor of Amos, uh, if you will. So in chapters one and chapters two, this is what we looked at last week. Uh, it, it, it looks like uh, he's addressing uh, the, the, this nation, but before he goes into addressing Israel's problem, he points out the problems of other nations uh, because he wants them to buy into the fact that something's wrong. And when something is wrong, uh, then God kind of has a hand in this and, and he is sovereign over these nations. And so therefore something's going to take place. And he, he wants to get them to agree, like, yes, there's something wrong here. So that when he says, yeah, but there's also something wrong with you, they're more receptive to doing it. Why? Because you and I, human nature is, we are very quick to point out the flaws and the inaccuracies and all the things that are wrong with other people and to kind of give ourselves like plausible deniability, give ourselves sort of excuses. Yeah, but there's also, you know, there's kind of reasons for the way that I act and the reasons for the way that I do. We don't give ourselves that kind of grace or we don't give other people that kind of grace, but we give it to ourselves. And so he, like a really smart author, addresses this story to be like, let's get all the heads nodding in agreement and then turn it on you. So he's got all these judgment for outside nations. And then he does one close to home with Israel, Judah, or, uh, with the nation of, of Judah, which is the southern kingdom. And then he says, and the nation of Israel, you are not exempt from this. Look at you. And then he goes on to critique some of the economic things that are going on. You, you put people into debt systems where they borrow a little amount of money, but then the recurring interest is so overwhelming for them, they'll never dig themselves out of the hole. And meanwhile, you just continue to get richer and you force all of this unjust stuff on them. You take things in as credit or as um, kind of like a pawn shop thing. You're gonna hold this and while you, uh, you owe me something, I'm gonna hold this item this typically this piece of clothing in, in, as a deposit, and when you pay me back, then I'll give you this thing back. And, and they said, this thing that you're holding in deposit, you would then, if it fits, put it on and wear it to church. And people are like, that's mine. You're like, well, technically it's mine because you owe me money. And you're flaunting it in front of them, and you're making a big scene out of this thing. Don't you see this is broken? What has become so commonly accepted 
is, is so bad, but you don't see it because you're in it. That's the problem Amos is saying. When you are in something, oftentimes it's, it's really difficult to see the flaws of what's being spoken of. So that's what leads to chapters one uh, and chapter two on this way. And he ended that, that phrase or that passage by saying, you, specifically the nation that I pulled out of Egypt, I would think of anybody, you would understand what grace and forgiveness and mercy looks like. You had 400 years of a background of, of uh, nationalistic slavery. Like you as a people group were entirely enslaved for 400 years. And then I reached in and pulled you out of that. And as soon as you get the freedom, then you begin this economic system where you enslave other people. How could you? This is like you as a parent, when you do something nice for one of your older kids, and then you watch the older kid do something mean to the younger kids, like you give, like I said this last week, you give them a piece of candy, and then they go and flaunt it to the other kids, like, I got a piece of candy, I got a piece of candy, right? And you as a parent go, ah, ah, I see what you did there. I'm logging this away for future use. If you think that I'm giving you a piece of candy next time, you are seriously wrong. It's not going to happen. Now, if you would handle that differently, maybe we. We'll see, right? So anyways, that's what's taking place here. That leads us to chapter three today. So uh, we're gonna th- go through a few verses. Uh, they're gonna be on the screens. Uh, they're also uh, on a Bible app on your phone if you wanna download the, the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, or if you text the word notes to 97,000, you can get all these on your, on your uh, screen, on your phone or at home or whatever. So here's what it says, verse one and two. Hear this word, people of Israel. The word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. Another jab, another reminder. After all I've done for you, this is how you're gonna, you're gonna treat me. This is how you're gonna represent me to the world. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Drawing attention to the fact that they were chosen, that they were unique, that they were special. And sometimes when you feel like you're chosen and when you feel like you're unique and when you feel like you're the favorite child, you think, I'll never get in trouble. Not really. And they're like, <laughs> and, and he's reminding them, you look around you and you think, oh man, we're blessed. Oh man, we're doing all the things in terms of being God's chosen nation. We have a temple, we have a synagogue, we have a sacrificial system. We, we're doing all the things we're supposed to be doing and we're being blessed economically. We think, therefore, we operate. We may not say it out loud. We would never say with like, aggression. Oh yeah, God cannot punish us. But there are far more people who deserve it more than us. That's what we would say. And we're kind of exempt from this. And Amos is trying to be like, not so fast. Not so fast. Verse three and four. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Does a lion roar in the thicket when it has no prey? Rhetorical questions, not really demanding an answer. And a reminder that he's doing this as an oral presentation, Amos was not written, and then he like hands the book to everybody. He's a prophet going into these nations, standing up on you know, school cafeteria counters and being like, and saying all these things. And then this was recorded later, right? Saying, uh, does it growl in its den when it has caught nothing? And if, if you read this like I read this this week, you're like three questions in, and you're like, I think this is a trick question, and I don't know the answer. I don't know what he's trying to say here. This feels like one of those poems that like everybody seems to get, and that you just don't, and you're like, it looks cool, but I don't know what the meaning of it is. Or people go, what do you think this means to you? And you're like, I don't know. They kind of rhyme, but they don't. Um, I don't understand the point of, of this. And he, by the way, he's going to go on for eight more, or, or a total of eight verses of this kind of stuff. Observations in nature. And the point of it is he's trying to say, we're going to look at the effect of something. What do you think caused that? Don't you think, do you think that that's just random? 
Or do you think that that was planned? When two people meet up in a park and go for a walk together, do you think it was by chance that they just happened to run into each other at the park? Or is it more likely that one of them called the other person and said, hey, would you like to go on a walk at the park? Let's meet up at three. The more likely scenario is that something caused that effect or something caused that result. So he spends eight verses of examples to try and draw one point, which if you're, hearing, if you're reading this like I read this, you're thinking, how inefficient. Why not just say that? Why illustrate this? And he's trying to re- use repetition to create memory because repetition works. When you repeat things, it works. You just change little tiny things and repetition works. Even just minor changes, repetition works. Do you see what I did there? See how that works? I just practiced it on you and you get it. Anyways, all right, we've got to move on. Uh, bad joke. All right. Um, verse nine, proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt. Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. Um, these two nations don't really ring like all that true for us. Egypt, we know, because like pyramids and stuff, but Ashdod, we're like, eh, I don't know what that means. Um, these would be two nations geographically located in the south. So technically, if they, were to be, uh, uh, if they were to be invaded from the north, they would have a great observation on this taking place. Um, so some guys think of that. The other thing would be known for sort of their inhumane atrocities towards humankind, some of the practices when it comes to activities of war, um, legendary bad people, like and from a not religious, but just a human conscious standpoint, bad people. These are the ones who Amos says are invited to come and watch popcorn, you know, or, or sorry, watch the movie of the destruction taking place. And they're the ones probably popping the popcorn and, and enjoying it. In, in modern day, we have some of these nations where we hear of the injustices going on in their countries. I won't say any nation specifically, but um, we would say that they are a blight against humanity, like what they accept as um, kind of common standards are like, not are beyond the point of indecency. Uh, It's terrible. And this would be them saying, okay, you nations come and watch the destruction of America, right? And and this is, that's, that's what's taking place here. This is a, the irony of them being invited to do this would be significant. And what are they invited to come see? They are invited to come see unrest and oppression, Unrest and oppression, two characteristics of the lifestyles of the rich and famous. And unrest, typically, uh, in terms of, uh, I got this stuff, but I, I'm, I'm feeling restless, feeling un- I'm not really satisfied, even though I thought I would have all the things that I needed. Wealth can sometimes do this, create this sense of unrest, and then oppression, in terms of, I want to keep what I have, so therefore, I will oppress those who, uh, who, are, who, who don't have it. It can, it can when... Uh, when you look at this nation, this is what is being charged against this, this wealthy nation. Their lust for power and status have led to violence and disrespect for human values. And they're the opposite of the peace that is so often prescribed when it comes to what is talked about in the Old Testament, this sense of shalom, the sense of, uh, of uh, peace and equity among people. It's so common, it's become this natural pattern of behavior. And as a result, verse 10 says this, they don't even know how to do right, declares the Lord. They store up for their, in their fortresses what they have plundered and looted. Their houses have become fortresses that house what they've plundered and looted. And the actual literal term there 
um, is they hoard violence and destruction, which is a little bit confusing because violence and destruction aren't, they don't feel like nouns. They don't feel like objects, right? And so a lot of interpreters or, or translations have said the objects of looting. Instead of they hoard violence, they, they, they hoard the objects of what, what they've gone in and taken from others. But actually, it says they hoard violence and destruction. And they display it proudly in their homes and they wear it to church. Therefore, verse 11, this is what the sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun your land, pull down your strongholds, and plunder your fortresses. Notice the pronoun usage here. He becomes direct. This is, this is great because, again, this is, uh, we, we are looking back over the shoulder of Amos writing to a nation. This isn't written to all Christians everywhere in all times. Be careful, right? This is a, a very quick example of something that took place. And, and then, therefore, what we have in, in kind of modern-day society is, well, if that happened, then what, what are some things we can learn from this kind of stuff, right? He begins to say, here's what's going to happen to you. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do to you, and then I'm going to do it to you. This is like very Conor McGregor of God, okay? I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do for you. He's a UFC fighter in case the joke went over your head. Anyways, verse 12 says this. This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd rescues from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites living in Samaria be rescued with only the head of a bed and a piece of fabric from a couch, what are you talking about here? What's this analogy being used? He, he reaches in and out of his toolbox from, from writing, pulls out this thing that would be a common kind of word analogy for them or an instance, an example of something that was kind of normal for them, which for us doesn't make any sense. But back then, he's a, he over, again, he oversaw shepherds. Shepherds would manage the sheep of other people. Many times they didn't even own their own sheep. They'd be hired hands to kind of make sure that these sheep go out and they graze and they feed and they come back. And when you take 20, you need to come back with 20. And if you don't come back with 20, you need to have an explanation for why there's only 16 now in the flock. You can't just say, I lost four of them. Because I don't know if you like sold four of them and pocketed the money. So if they do get eaten up by animals, if they get eaten up by lions, then it's, it's the, the thing that you need to do, and this is like a Levitical rule, is you need to at least bring back some sort of bones or something to say, they got eaten by lions and here's proof that it took place. Otherwise, I might come at you. The bottom line is the picture is there's almost nothing left other than tiny little scraps. And he says, this is what's gonna happen to you as well. What's gonna be left is all of this furniture that you've looted and plundered and you've stacked your house with, they're going to bring back legs of a furniture and be like, this is all that's left of Israel. This is, this is what's going on. All right. Uh, verse 13 of chapter three. Hear this and testify against the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. We'll talk about that in a second. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house because they've got both of them. They, they go to Phoenix in the winter. Uh, the houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. On this day, they keep speaking of a day. In fact, that kind of a word picture comes up over and over again in the Old Testament, uh, something called the day of the Lord, and it actually makes an appearance in the New Testament too. It's basically this day of reckoning. It's not the day that Christ returns. That's a different day in this. In this moment, many times a nation would go through a day of reckoning. In other words, all of the, at, at some point, your sins are kind of caught up to you, and now action's going to be taken upon you. That's the day of the Lord. The, the uh, modern day equivalent would be wait until mom gets home. Wait until dad gets home. When dad hears about this, ooh boy, you are in trouble. You know what I mean? That's what's going on with this. So with that, 
I came up with a couple of takeaways because, like, what does this mean, like, for us, right? I mean, you're going to go to work tomorrow. You're going to do your stuff. You're going to try and live your life, and and uh, this feels very Old Testament. You don't feel rich, and because uh, uh, nobody ever does, um, not typically. Um, so this is this is a difficult one. So I, I came up with a couple of things. One is going to be a little bit like. Uh, aggressive, and I tried to reword it to soften it up, and then I just, I, I couldn't do it. And then the, the next one will be a little more applicable. So if you're writing things down, number one, God cannot bless those who use violence to gain possessions and power. Cannot. What do you mean, Brent? That, seems, that feels aggressive. Who are you to tell God what he can and cannot do, right? Um, I get it. I, I think it's important to see that what Amos is critiquing is not the acquisition of wealth. What he's critiquing is not the, what I call it earlier, the, the strategic uh, income ingenuity, not entrepreneurship. It's not the fact that people are wealthy in Israel. It's the fact that they obtained it using unjust means and they continue to live in a way that for them makes the most sense if they want to keep the security of having wealth. How they obtained it, how they use it. Not that it exists. If last week you felt like um, Brent is like, uh, Brent used that phrase, God is on the side of the poor, and that it, it exalts being poor, it can also be looked at as a negative thing in terms of um, it kind of like keeps, or it's a message that could potentially keep poor people poor. Like, oh no, God's on your side. You should stay poor. It's really great. And they're like, really? It doesn't feel all that great. Thanks. Um, it's not about that at all. It's not about a bottom line. It's about the means by which it's acquired and the way in which it's lived out. So when it's acquired in a way that it is unjust, it is I almost, I almost said really hard or difficult, try and soften it up. It's impossible for God to continue to bless that. In a way, to behave oppressively is a sign that one does not fear God. And people who have acted in this way have either thoroughly rejected God's instruction about justice in their tradition or are so perverted by their own selfishness and rationalization of improper behavior that they no longer comprehend the, the distinction between what is right and what is Wrong. The acquisition has become so important. I can't even, they can't even see what's right from what is wrong in this way. And in that sort of a scenario, selfish goals and desires are given the highest value, which is why they can get to a spot where they feel like they deserve furniture with irony, uh, sorry, irony, ivory inlays. I deserve this. I need that second house even though it serves no real utilitarian purpose. I need that, or I deserve that. All right, number two, possessions and even religious institutions provide only a deceptive security. Possessions and even religious institutions. What's his critique? He looks at them and he says, be aware you're in danger. And I, I mentioned early on, they would say, how can that be so? We're doing all the things we need to do religiously, and we're growing economically. So therefore, what kind of an issue would God have with us? If a nation looks at its GDP, right, 
and then it looks at the religious structures of how it was founded or how it continues to operate, the religious freedoms, there would be a sense in which I think we're safe. We're doing pretty good in both of these areas. And we've got some bad things going on, but for the most part, so if this doesn't feel like all that relevant, I would challenge that question and be like, I don't know, kind of feels relevant to us. I know it's a prophetic book. I know it was addressed to a nation a thousand, several thousand years ago. But good golly, I do think, good, I just said good golly in church, it's on camera, whatever. Good golly, he said good golly. Um, I do think that there's some relevance here. I do think that this is a, a unique challenge. Why? Because there are a couple of things that can draw us into false sense of security. One of them being wealth, another being worship. Let's start with um, the, 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 the first one will be just the, uh, the, the wealth part. So two sources of security for Israel, the altars where they worship, their strongly fortified mansions. When it comes to stuff, one of the reasons it's difficult for each person to enter into the kingdom of heaven, Jesus has another parable where he talks, um, he, he, he uh, invites this uh, rich young ruler to come up and, and this rich young ruler goes, hey, I'm, I'm super into like what you're talking about. I wanna know more. What do, you, what do I, I've done all these things. What do I need to do? And Jesus knows that wealth has got a, a, a grip on him that he doesn't realize. And so he says to this, this young ruler guy, uh, well, you're gonna need to give everything away. He doesn't, he doesn't demand this from everybody else or anybody else that we know of, but for this kid, it does. And it says the rich, the rich young ruler walked away sad and Jesus looks at his disciples and he goes, let me explain to you why I did this. I'm not asking you guys to do this, but for, for, for him uniquely, it's because I, it was such a grip on him. You don't understand. It is really difficult. He says it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which is like, a, again, an analogy, a picture, a word picture that is, oh, it's impossible. Instead of saying it's impossible, you just get bored of saying impossible, so you come up with something creative. It's easier for a camel to enter in the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven, which is not a place that you go when you die. It's a mentality of stuff is just stuff. It's really hard to get there is what he's saying. Wealth makes that when it's acquired in a certain way and when it's lived out in a certain way, it's really hard to get to that spot. When possessions take on a kind of importance, an identity is wrapped up in this, my status is wrapped up in this, then what happens is if my identity is wrapped up in my stuff, then I will go to great extremes and great lengths to protect what it is that I have. When anything seriously threatens statuses of people like that, they will sometimes, and I said sometimes and I got challenged to use often, they will often act in illegal or immoral ways to maintain their affluent lifestyle. Think about this. When we read about white-collar crime taking place, they're genuinely decent people. They're, or it, it, they all, you always hear, oh, it couldn't have been him, it couldn't have been her, or whatever. They're, they're good people, and yet when something got threatened, all of a sudden, I'm, I, I don't want the... I'm afraid of losing the level of living that I've become accustomed to, now I'm willing to rub the line, blur the line of ethical, uh, ethical motives or uh, ethics so that I can protect what I have. We think about it and we'd be like, how in the world could a guy like Bernie Madoff do the things that he did? And I'm not like picking on him. I just saw a documentary on him not too long ago, so it comes to mind. How could he do some of that stuff? He didn't start off in this way, I can't wait to deceive people out of millions of dollars, right? He probably started off with genuine, honest means, but then it got to the spot where I I don't like losing, and that became so wrapped up in it. Now I'm gonna do some things that are unethical because I just can't, I don't wanna be in a spot where I'm losing either the image and the competition of it or 
I'm losing the status that I'm so overwhelmed with. Listen, when your security is wrapped up in things and when those begin to go away, you do stupid things in return. Amos is pointing this out to this nation. And he's saying, watch out. Your dependence is no longer on God. Stuff is not just stuff to you. It's stuff and status. It's stuff and something more. It's important. And then he also includes, and this is super, if you're religious, if you can you know, consider yourself a Christian or East Lakes Home or whatever, then here's an extra added bonus challenge, all right? Worship. The things that you do spiritually, religiously, can also fall under this trap. They looked around them, not only were they, they successful economically, they also looked around them and go, we've got this temple system, we've got a sacrificial system. If, if anything bad happens, we know exactly what to do. We've been given this, you know, this very clear layout, the, the whole Levitical system, we're gonna go, we're gonna sacrifice. If, if it's this sin, we sacrifice a dove. If it's this sin, we sacrifice a goat. And if it's this, we, we know exactly where we stand. And he goes, and, and Amos is challenging this going, yeah, 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 Okay, but if you go through the motions of religious activity and there's not a genuine confession and not a genuine I'm gonna do better and motivation to do better next time, if it's all I'm doing is paying penance for what I did and it's not having any sort of effect on future behavior and I'm okay with that, then Amos says that is, that is a false religion, that's not how this thing works. And the horns on the altar, let me, let me give you an example uh, or a kind of build into that one. So he says, essentially this, uh, even the horns of the altar are gonna fall off. Those, those would be, there'd be like this, this special box that would house the, the 10 commandments, the stone tablets. Um, they would be in like the super holy of holies, right? And, and, and there would be uh, uh, horns on the outside of the box. And if there was an example of if you had, as a person had accidentally killed somebody, right? And it was genuinely not like premeditated murder. It was just like your, it was totally your fault, but, but, um, uh, but it was not, not uh, previously thought of or whatever. Um, then you are in danger of the avenger, the closest relative coming and saying, eye for an eye, I'm going to kill you because you killed my brother, right? What you do is you flee to the temple and claim sanctuary. And symbolically, the symbolic way to claim sanctuary is to run into the temple and grab onto the, 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 uh, the horns on the altar. That was like their way of being like, all the all action free, I'm safe, can't get me, no touch, right? Now I get a chance to be heard, my story gets to be heard and all this kind of stuff. So they, they, they have a way of, but if we do all of these things then God can't be angry with us. And he says, I'm gonna rip that down too. You have all these things to kind of prov- provide you with a sense of security and allow you to like, do something over here to go to confession over here and then live however you want Monday through Saturday. And religion, church, the whole system has just become a band-aid of sorts or a thing that you use when you feel bad, when your conscience is in a spot. And he's like, when you treat religious stuff like that, you gotta know that that's not gonna work for you. There's gotta be something different in that way. Possessions and even religious institutions provide only deceptive security. Now, what do you, what, what's the response with that? Then how do they respond? What are, what's the next step with that? That's why we continue this series, and I hope you come back next week. But I do want to leave you with one quote that I found this week from a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor, theologian, who got into some trouble, um, who uh, 
was in Germany and saw the rise of Adolf Hitler kind of coming up and, and then decided to leave and go to America. Then he felt bad. He went to America and felt like he was like escaping when he should have been a voice for what was taking place. So he moved back over to Germany and eventually got caught and arrested and uh, killed, martyred for his faith. Basically, he put in prison for a long time. The whole Nazi Germany had the institutional church on their side. They had come up with all kinds of plausible explanations for why this was justified and why scripture speaks to, and obviously looking back on it now, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it because we know of the atrocities that took place. So we're like, how in the world could they get there? In that moment, the, his entire world, most of his friends, all of his security blankets were all on board with this Nazism taking place. So he's writing these letters and papers from prison, trying to help people see you don't even understand the things that you have accepted as normal and the, the, really the abhorrent nature of them. So that's why I think this is so powerful because he's like a modern-day Amos writing to these, this group of people, and, and we don't live in Nazi Germany, but we can see it's a little bit more closer to home, an example with the emotions that go along with that because we all have feelings about that scenario, right? So he says this, to his constituents, to his people, to his, uh, in a book called The Letters and Papers from Prison, um, he writes this as, uh, to, to encourage them to try and be a people group living differently in this age. Our being Christian today, today will be limited to two things, prayer and doing justice among men. How, when everything else around you is going a certain direction, when the entire government, when, when this, when, it, when, when your security is, would be easier to just go with the flow of things, how would you live that out differently? And he says, through prayer, connection with God, right? So, some sort of a, I understand kind of who I'm at and submission to authority type stuff and doing justice among men. Perhaps for us, when modern day Americans, as we're trying to live out the Christian faith and we hear these challenges and we look around and we, we are tempted to think economically we're doing pretty well, religiously everybody thinks of us as a Christian nation. I mean, I don't think we have much to avoid here, right? That's, that's when Amos would say, aha, but that's, that's exactly what Israel thought too. Be, be very, very careful. Do not let wealth or worship become emotional security blankets for you not to understand that there's something more beyond this. Prayer and doing justice among men. Next week, I hope you come back as we continue and look at what leads up to one of the most famous passages, uh, Amos chapter 5, one that uh, shows up in MLK's I Have a Dream speech and so much more. Let's pray. Father, would you be with us this week as we attempt to navigate what this would look like in our own personal life, whether whatever financial struggles that we've been going through or our, our sense of um, the, our place of faith and in, in, in our religious journey or whatever and, and our reliance on some of these things. How, where do we find our security? What do we allow to define us? What's our status? Where do we find our identity? I mean, all these things are, are difficult questions to process through. Uh, give us the wisdom to know what to do with this and the courage to act on it in your name. Amen.